Um, we're going to be in John chapter 1, a very familiar text, um, as we uh, talk about the incarnation of Christ. Uh, this is one of two texts that are uh, primary in the New Testament regarding the incarnation or, or God becoming flesh. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And then skipping down in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1 begins with Apostle John talks, talking about the Word. Who is the Word? We are told that the Word was with God from the beginning, but yet the Word was God. So we can establish the Word was God, but also with God. Secondly, we're told that the Word gives light and life to everyone. And then thirdly, the Word, or God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Well, my question is, couldn't God have accomplished all that he wanted to accomplish by remaining in heaven and utilizing all of his omnipotent powers in heaven? Couldn't he have done what he wanted to do? After all, God spoke everything in, into existence simply by speaking words. Why did he have to come to earth? That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. God becoming flesh. But why did he have to come? I, I would like to talk about three reasons. First one is the longest, and then the second two are pretty short. First one is God came to earth in the form of Jesus, to make himself known. The second is so that we could understand who he is and that we could understand that he understands us. And the third reason is to redeem us. All right? So first point is God wanted to make himself known. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Why is Jesus, in verse 14, he became flesh. Why was this word um, why was he called the Word? Why was Jesus called the Word? Wasn't it because he's the sum total of everything God wanted to say to us? He is the Word, not just a bunch of words. You know, the prophets gave us words, the king gave us words, but God sent the Word, the sum total of everything that he wanted to tell us. And some current hip-hop musicians, when they hear something that they really love, they'll say, Word, because it's a sum total of everything they're thinking. Word. Robert, uh, Jesus was the complete word or communication from fa the Father in heaven. J. Robert Oppenheimer suggested the best way to present an idea is to wrap it up in a person. This word became a person. Jesus was spelling himself out in a language humanity could understand. John 14, 9 we're told, anyone who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or as one little girl in Sunday school said, people couldn't hear God's whisper 
So he said it out loud in Jesus, or through Jesus. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This word dwelling in Greek is literally the word tabernacled. Or as Eugene Peterson so memorably said in his Bible called The Message, he said the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He tabernacled with us. And the minds of the first hearers of this gospel would have thought immediately of the Old Testament tabernacle when the Jews were wandering in the wilderness and how uh, the glory of God was seen, the dwelling of God was in their midst. And they would have seen the glory of God as well in the, the pillar of fire at night and in the cloud that displayed itself during the daytime. They always saw the presence of God revealing himself. And they camped around this tabernacle. God was with us. Well, these early Jews, they would have said, we can understand that type of tabernacle, but here we're hearing about God becoming flesh, God becoming a human. Them words be blasphemous to us Jews. But for Greeks and Romans, it would have been secondhand news, for they believed that emperors and kings and their Caesars were God in the flesh. They believed that they were God's incarnate. But for the Jews, the Jews wouldn't even dare to say God's name out loud. They testified about Jesus, though, in verse 14. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. These Jews were testifying to see the word becoming flesh. This word glory, then, we've seen his glory. What does glory mean? The glory of the sun is manifest in what we feel on our faces. We say, man, that sun is warm today. It feels nice. That sun is millions million of miles away, but we feel it. It's one and the same. The sunshine with its rays hitting our face. We feel the glory of the sun made manifest to us. Or we look in the skies at night and we think, man, the heavens declare the glory of God. Oftentimes people, when they use their spiritual gifts, and they use them to glorify God. For example, you've heard of Bach, the composer. At the end of all of his compositions and manuscripts, he wrote the initials SDG, meaning Soli Deo Gloria, meaning the to glory to God alone. And on the top of his manuscripts, he wrote, Yesu Yuva, in Latin, meaning Jesus, help! He did everything in dependence on his heavenly Father for his glory, the glory of God. But when God revealed his glory through the word made flesh, then um, he revealed the fullness of God's glory in his Son, Hebrews 1 tells us the sun, S-O-N, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. What's God like? Well, Jesus said, here I am. This is what God is like. I'm the exact representation of God the Father. This is why I've come to reveal myself to you, to make myself known to you, to make my heavenly Father known to you. 
That's sometimes hard to swallow, though. We think if God were to come to earth today and reveal himself today, what would most people expect to see and witness and hear? And I think many people say, oh man, I hope he doesn't come here. Are you kidding me? God coming to McPherson? He's going to be angry with us or he's going to show forth his wrath. And in the Old Testament times, most comprehended or they misunderstood God. They saw him as someone to be feared and revered, a God of justice, a God of wrath, a God who can turn on you in a dime. Even the Jews would not dare to approach Mount Sinai when Moses was up the mountain with God because they feared being struck dead or touching the uh, Ark of the Covenant because God might strike them dead or going behind the curtain in the temple of God. They would not dare that because they knew they'd be struck dead and so God was someone to be feared but then God's faithful followers they wouldn't even say his name Yahweh or Jehovah for fear of exacting his wrath but then Jesus came along and he said hey you can call my father Abba meaning daddy the professor of theology Robert Stewart said for centuries God has been saying things like Turn away. Don't touch me. Take off your shoes. The place you're standing is holy ground. But now he says, hey, see me. Touch me. Know me. Approach me. And so sinners, when Jesus was on earth, when sinners would see Jesus, people who felt unworthy, people who were ostracized, they would run to Jesus. They would walk for miles and days in order to hear him, to see him, to listen to him because they knew how much he loved them. And we know that from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. His son was the personification of the love of God. But we forget John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. His intent was to pursue us as a scorned lover pursuing the one he loves. God came to earth in God the Son, who is fully human and fully God. When we talk about him being, Jesus being fully God, we talk about the deity of Jesus. He is God in the flesh. And we can't understand that the deity how could God become human much less the trinity God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit one God in three persons every other world religion would say there's only one God what are you talking about trinity three persons what does that mean that's blasphemous they would argue for one God and so Saint Augustine an early Christian leader he grappled with this issue of the trinity And he concluded, if there is no trinity, then God would be a defective and deficient God. Why? Well, because he would have had to exist from all eternity, but there would be nobody to love. And so he had to create a world to meet a deficient need within him in order that he could love someone. Do you think God had to create a world and people in order to meet a deficient need in his life? And so he was less than prior to his creation? God created the world not to get so that he could get something. 
God created the world because he wanted to give, not to meet his own needs, but to be as an overflow of the abundance of love that he had experienced with the Holy Trinity as they did this, this love dance of love for all eternity prior to us being in existence. The Holy Trinity loved each other, and they said, man, this love is so great to keep to ourselves. We need to share it. And so they created us so that God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit could share the love with us. By the way, um, speaking of the Trinity and the deity of God uh, or Jesus, what's the difference between God the Father and God the Son? A kid was asked this in Sunday school class, and the kid said, well, I know that God the Father is left-handed. How many left-handers are in here? Did you know that? He's left-handed, and the teacher said, why is that, Billy? He said, well, because Jesus' son is sitting on God's right hand for all eternity. Did you get it? Sitting at God's right hand. Anyway, that was a commercial. Uh, Break. God came to earth to make himself known through Jesus. That's the first point, the long point. Secondly, God came to earth in the form of Jesus, to let us know that he understands us. Now, it's one thing for someone who's rich and famous and successful, like a Hollywood star or musician or famous professional athlete, to go to a third-world country and to uh, kind of be an ambassador for a week or two in order to increase some sort of awareness and to generate funds for these kids in other countries. But then they return home to their own success and luxury and extravagance and fame. It's quite another thing for someone like St. Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa or Henri Nouwen uh, to choose to leave their homes, give up all that they have in order to live among the poorest of the poor to convey the love of God to someone. How would you feel if God's son came to us born in Buckingham Palace or in Beverly Hills or raised by some sort of royalty or some multimillionaire. We'd say, well, that's nice, but he won't relate to me then, and certainly I can't relate to him. But um, someone said, Philip Yancey in his book, Jesus I Never Knew, says, it seems that God arranged the most humiliating circumstances possible for his entrance into this world as if to avoid any charge of favoritism. John 1.10 He was in the world and though the world was made through him the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. In other words, Jesus experienced rejection and abandonment, loneliness, betrayal, pain and hunger misunderstanding, false accusation. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that he would. He he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem, speaking of the Messiah. But our suffering servant wasn't just a moral example for Mother Teresa to aspire to live like, or St. Francis. No, he was a living Savior and is a living Savior 
who's experienced everything that we could ever experience by way of pain and disappointment and even multiplied what we experience. And we can know that he understands what we're going through. He's a Savior who's been there before us. We're told in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help him in our time of need. God came to earth so that we could know that he understands us. And then finally, God came to earth in order to redeem us. Well, there's a good word. There's a good churchy word, redemption. What does that mean? The first time I learned about redemption was when I was taking Coke bottles back to the grocery store in the day, you know, the corner mom and pop shops, and took back these bottles. Have you ever done this? And you redeemed them. Actually, they redeemed them from you. They paid you for what they used to have, and then we have it, and then we sell it back, and that's the redemption process. We get payment. Or maybe you've heard this illustration. A boy built a little sailboat, and he was so proud of him because he created all by himself, and he wondered if it would float. And so he went to the river in the middle of town, and he placed the river or the boat in the river, and he was so excited because this boat actually floated, and the wind caught the sail, and it started sailing. He was jumping up and down. He couldn't believe that his little beloved boat was sailing. And then a gust of wind came and it took it further downstream and so the boy was running after it and laughing and then he ran into this wooded area where the boat continued and went around the bend and the, and the kid lost his boat and he was devastated. About a week later, when he was walking downtown, he walked past a, a window and he noticed his boat was in the window of the pawn shop. So he got ecstatic. He rushed into the store and he told the owner, that's my boat in your window. Can I have it? He said, yes, son, you can have it for $5. And the kid was, again, devastated because he didn't have an, even a nickel. He went home and he did chores for all the neighbors. And so after a week or so, when he had put together $5 worth of coins, he came back to the store. He plopped it down on the, on the counter and he got his boat back again. He reclaimed that which was his own. The thing that he loved and created, he lost it, but then it was found, and then he redeemed it for $5. And that's what God has done for us. We were lost in the garden, but then he sent his son to redeem us. But you might be thinking, why was it Jesus who was qualified to redeem us again why didn't God just from heaven snap his fingers and reclaim that which we, he lost in the garden to Satan why didn't he just take it back he could do that he had all the power in the universe to take it back why didn't he just body slam Satan to the ground and reclaim that which he lost namely his creation in order to understand why you need to understand what happened in the beginning and let me convey uh, this to you, remind you of this. In the beginning, God created the first humans. They belonged to him, Adam and Eve. 
they walked and talked with God in the garden and, and God, and lo- God loved them, they loved him. Unbroken fellowship and relationship. Furthermore, God gave them a wonderful gift, the privilege to take care of, to tend the land and the animals, God's creation. You are given the responsibility to be stewards of what I've created. They had complete joy, freedom, peace, and purpose. God said, but there's only one prohibition. Do not go to that tree in the middle of the garden and eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because if you do, then you'll die. That's the only thing. Avoid that tree. Well, you know the story where God's fallen angel, Lucifer, came to them in the form of a serpent. And uh, he said, hey, did God really tell you not to eat from that tree? Let me tell you something. If you eat of that tree, God knows that you'll be like him. You can be like God if you eat with, and attain all this knowledge. And so they bit into this lie. They took a hook, line, and sinker, and they took of the fruit, and they ate it, and they experienced death. Not physical death right away, but spiritual death, emotional death. They experienced shame and guilt and fear. They ran and hid from God and from each other. Their relationship with God was severed and they became servants to another master. Satan, who became the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the one who rules and sneaks around even today. In other words, they handed, they handed over the rights that God had entrusted to them. They handed it over to Satan. So why didn't God just swoop down and take it back then? Well, because God is a God of justice. He can't act against his nature. He can't break the spiritual law that he created. He had to respond in a legal way in order to redeem his creation that he lost. So how could he do that legally? Well, he had to become a man because it was a man, Adam, who gave away that which, you know, that that privilege and creation, it would have to be another man to rightfully take it back. The first Adam gave it away. There had to be some sort of second Adam to come and get it back. But the problem was, every human that was born was born under the sin nature of Adam. And they inherited the sin nature. So that disqualified any one of us from being a redeemer because we had our own sin to contend with. Thus, There needed to be a perfect man, one without sin, one who had not inherited the sin nature of Adam. Furthermore, this man had to remain sinless throughout his entire life. Had he sinned just one time, he would have disqualified himself from being a redeemer, and he would have been under the subject of death and eternal death, just like we are. Well, let me introduce to you one, the only qualified person who ever walked the face of the earth. And that was Jesus Christ, God the Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was born of a virgin, thus making him fully God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and fully man, born of a virgin, fully human. Fully God, fully human. Now, this is one part of the Christmas story that many professing Christians would just soon leave out, the virgin birth of the Savior. It sounds too unreal, surreal. sounds too made up. 
In fact, in 1970, in Christianity Today magazine, they published a survey that revealed that the, uh, concerning the virgin birth that it was denied by 60% of Methodists, 49% of Presbyterians, 44% of Episcopalians, 34% of Baptists, and 19% of Lutherans. The virgin birth, not necessary. We can still believe in God without the nonsense of the virgin birth. And I'm pretty sure the numbers have only increased the percentages since 1970. Even church people have bought into the lie that Jesus' virgin birth was unnecessary. But without the virgin birth, then Jesus would have been disqualified because he would have inherited the sin nature of Adam and Eve. But Jesus, our Redeemer, was born without that sin nature on Christmas morning. And so we celebrate that. But Christmas would be irrelevant to us, except for the lights and the presents. It'd be irrelevant to us unless there was Easter. The price for our redemption was not the $5 that the boy had to shell out for a sailboat. It wasn't even $500,000 for those who could afford it. But the price for our redemption was death. You see, in the garden, God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die and you'll be eternally separated from me because of your sin. And then later on, the prophets would say, the soul that sins shall surely die. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said, for the wages of your sin is death. Death is the payment, not a nickel for a pop bottle, not $5 for a sailboat, but death was the payment. For our redemption. So Jesus was born in the manger amidst the stench of animal smells in order to die on the cross amidst the stench of our sin in order to redeem us and give us his life that we don't deserve, that which we handed over at the garden. Unlike the little boy's sailboat, though, um, we have a choice as to whether we'll receive this gift from God or not. We can continue to believe the lie of Satan and the one that he serves up say, hey, you can run your own life. You can be like God. You can be your own little God. You don't need some invisible God managing you or ruling over you. And so many people that you walk with and serve with and, and work alongside, maybe even family members, they bought into that lie. They don't need some sort of God. We can be our own gods. We are self-made human beings. Or we can run back into the arms of our Creator and our Redeemer, admitting our need for Him. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. I want to end with just reading a description of a man who, who took his young son to one of those archives and, or several of them in Washington, D.C. He said, I remember taking one of my sons to a national art gallery in Washington, D.C. I love to paint, so I was personally excited about what we're going to see. But even more than that, I was excited to give my son this awesome experience. I had a parental vision that he would have this, his mind blown and would thank me for what I had done for him that day. And as it turned out, he was decidedly unexcited. His mind wasn't blown, 
It wasn't even activated. I saw things of such stunning beauty that brought me to the edge of, my, of tears. My son, he yawned and moaned and complained his way through the gallery after gallery. With every new work, I was enthralled. But each time we walked into a different room, he begged me to leave. He was surrounded by glory, but saw none of it. He stood in the middle of wonders, but was bored out of his mind. His eyes functioned perfectly, but his heart was stone cold. He saw everything, but at the same time, he saw nothing. You live beside and work alongside people who see nothing of the glory of God. My question to you is, have you seen the glory of God revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, God with us? And have you responded to him? You see, God has given us a free will. We can say, I want to live my own life, God. Thank you very much. I've got a free will. And God says, go for it. If you want to do that, he's a gentleman. He'll let us. But if we choose to run into the arms of our Redeemer, our Creator, then he says, I will I will restore you to my original purpose, to what was lost in the garden. And you can have my blessing upon your life, both now and for all eternity. This is what we celebrate at Christmas and Easter, a living relationship with a living God and Savior. Do you know him? Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who chose to reveal yourself to us because you wanted to be known. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who wants us to understand you and know that you understand us. And I thank you that you are a God who loved us enough to give up your life, God the Son, on the cross that we may be purchased back by your death, by your shed blood. Lord, we are recipients of this good news that there are many around us who have no clue about what this means, no clue of the gospel. So I pray this Christmas season, Lord, you give us opportunities uh, to be vessels of your good news. May this be a hope-filled Christmas for each one of us and for others who don't even know it yet. In Christ's name, amen.